Romans 1, 15-32, man's mind life in review here. We're going to read 15-32, to 32, man's mind life in review. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, may God himself use his inerrant and authoritative word and minister to your hearts and mine this morning. 
What do we know about men from our study so far? Romans chapter 1 has taught us much about men to this point. Men do not acknowledge God and give thanks. You saw that. We've reviewed that. Verses 20 and 21. They don't acknowledge him. They don't give him thanks. Why? Why don't they do this? This is a question I, I hope becomes clear as we ponder over this this morning. Men have a bent to them. You know what I mean when I say they, they have a bent to them? They, they have a predisposition to them. Men are bent. Men are man-like. The same way that rocks are rock-like. Does that make sense to you? There are principles that dictate the behavior of rocks, aren't there? You don't need to be a scientist to be able to predict what a rock does. You guys are all brilliant enough to know what rocks do. If I hold it in my hand and let it go, it falls. Like a rock. You can usually predict the behavior of a rock. There are principles that dictate the behavior of men. And their minds, the mind of men, are not suited to godliness and righteousness. By their bend. By the way they are, they are not godly and they are not righteous. By the time we get to Romans 3.23, if you know what Romans 3.23 says, you can raise your hand. If you're not sure, I'll remind you. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God. By the time we get to Romans 3, Paul begins summarizing what he's teaching us in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. What is the point of his telling us what he is telling us in chapter 1? He hasn't even used the word sin yet. Have you noticed that? He hasn't used the word sin yet. But he does finally conclude at that point in chapter 3 that these things are serving to show us that he is a sinner. Man is bent this way. Men who behold the glory and the majesty of the godness of God and the eternal nature of his being and power do what? They exchange. Men have been shown these things and they exchange it or they change it for images is what it says in verse 23. They see invisible things, which I I love to ponder on. They see invisible things and they change it away. It's verse 23. We we are learning the history of the non-Jews mind life. Romans chapter 1 is teaching us the history of the non-Jews' mind life. They know. They know. God has made it known is what we have read. In their minds, they know. Verse 19. 
So we know about man's mind toward God. Man sees these things. He evaluates these things. The mind makes an evaluation. The mind makes a calculation. What does it do with what it knows and with what it sees? It turns away from it. Like you sometimes take a gift that's been given to you and you don't really like it. And if you can find a way to exchange it for something you like without embarrassing the person who bought it for you, sometimes you do that. You exchange it because you don't like it. It's not quite right. Beholding God and his glories has resulted in what the scripture says is an inexcusable guilt. And the gospel, the gospel teaches you and I this perversion of man's mind. What what we are really learning in Romans chapter 1 is what has happened in the mind of men. What have they done? All this has begun in their mind, which turns into their doings, and their thinking and their doing results in their guilt. Verse 20 says they are inexcusable. They are without excuse in my translation. So observing from the first couple of chapters of Romans, we know they're religious in verse 25. Verse 25 makes a reference to the the fact that they are worshipers. They also know right and wrong. If you look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says that there is something in their hearts allowing them to discern right and wrong, justifying wrong with other arguments. They have a, a sensibility about what they think is right and wrong. The law is written on their hearts. They are morally sensible. Chapter 2, verse 15 is where we see them utilizing a, a moral rationale to either defend their doings or to condemn doings. They have vain imaginations in verse 21, which exposes the, the mental activity that flowed from their perceptions of God. They, they have this thing going on in their minds and in their hearts Vain imaginations are what come out of what they see in God. And it said that their hearts were darkened or their foolish hearts were darkened. In verse 24, they are without excuse and they're given up. And I wanted to ponder with you because the text mentions it so many times without really helping us dive into it ourselves. I wanted to think with you for a moment about what the mind is. What is a mind? What is a mind? There are three passages, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 prove to be three stages or three increments of, of a regression. Sometimes people call it depravity, three, three steps into depravity. But since depravity is usually considered 
a, a negative thing or a bad thing. It's it's not easy to con- call your your steps into badness advancing. So they're 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 regressing. They're falling further and further backward into degrees of depravity. And it seems to result from a a proportional given over is, is the commonly repeated phrase in these three verses, 24, 26, 28. Talk about given over. So they're given over from one degree to another, and the given overness seems to be in proportion to how far they go bad once they are actually given over. Verse 24 says, Wherefore God also gave them up to, it says, uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Verse 26, For this cause gave them up to vile affections. And I'm going to show how these things are all different indications or aspects of the mind. So verse 26, This cause... For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God, where? In their knowledge. And where is your knowledge? It's in your mind. God gave them over to a, a translation, I believe the King James says, a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. Where is the mind? Where is it? Can you go down to hospital and have them do an MRI of your mind? I'm afraid they can. The mind is is really the spiritual you. It's a very <laughs> it's a very interesting contemplation for you to ponder what the mind is. This last step says that men are given over to a reprobate mind. And it's fascinating. Men typically see themselves advancing. If if you ask people on the streets of your town or in your family or even Google it, men perceive themselves as advancing, advancing technology and sophistication of food production and, and advancing arts, advancing government. But if we were to make some kind of conclusion based off of Romans chapter 1 and in particular verses 24, 26, and 28, we don't see man advancing. We see man regressing. We see man going backwards. And the mind is the root of this person. The mind is the core of these of these people and of this culture. The mind produces an ethic regarding reverence and worship of God, doesn't it? Isn't your understanding of your own reverence to God and your own worship to God is not our corporate understanding of this something that comes from our mind? Your mind is where we find worship and reverence. Your mind is where we find discipline of thankfulness. Thankful people learned to be thankful really by their thankfulness and their discipline to be thankful, didn't they? It came from their mind. It comes from a mental order 
prioritizing God and God's supremacy. When somebody is thankful to God, they have prioritized and ordered God in their mind as supreme, haven't they? Their mind has been trained to see this and to recognize this. And I think you'll agree with me that this creates a life. As in the behavior that you have based on your mind's contents, your mind's habits, your mind's preferences, this creates a life, doesn't it? This is what makes your life. Your mind makes you what you are. It is where knowledge is, isn't it? Your mind is where purpose is. Knowledge purpose. There's also something that we do in our mind that's called evaluation. Your your mind weighs things. Your mind weighs things you prefer and, and things you despise. Things you want and don't want. Things you cherish. And I think this picture might be helpful. The mind is the Lord small l, the mind is the Lord, or the mind is a Lord, and his estate is the hands and the feet and the fruit of his rule. If your mind is the Lord of something, and it is, the hands and the feet and the fruit that come from its life is the product of his rule. The problem really is, and what is exposed here in Romans, is that these lords, by their nature, reject the king's eminence. They reject the Lord. And so the little L lords do their own thing, disconnected from the capital L Lord. And as they forge out their own glories, and, and, and this really is what men do. They, they make their own glories. They make their own preferences. They make their own greatnesses. They make their own glories. They pursue their own glories. As men do this, God allows each little L Lord a degree of rule. When, it, when, when we read in 24 and 26 and 28, when he gives them over, that is a picture of the little L Lord pressing into his lording of whatever it happens to be in. And God lets him take it and have it. He's given over to his desire to do this. And the mind chooses its riches. The mind chooses its pleasures. The mind chooses its pastimes and its careers and its lovers and its balms. Or another word for balm might be drugs. The mind chooses the things that it wants to, to protect itself from pain with. Some people deal with pain with movies. Some people deal with pain with drugs. Some people deal with pain with music. Balms. Men pursue these things to protect themselves from discomfort, either real physical discomfort or emotional discomfort. So the given up mind races 
forward. It works forward. It acts and behaves and lives forward into its life by its own reason, its own priority, its own wants. It is its own Lord. This is what the mind does. Vaguely aware, Paul warns us, that God will require a final accounting. Every one of these lords knows that there is a God, and they're vaguely aware of it. And what do they do? They, they, they try to justify it. They try to forget it. They try to hide from the fact that there is an accounting someday in their future And for the most part, he doesn't care that he's enslaved by sin. And he convinces himself, maybe saying you only live once. He he grabs hold of things like that. There's a philosopher years ago that said God is dead. So some people grab a hold of something like that. They, They go into their godless future unafraid because they say to themselves, God is dead or there is no such thing as God. Or they've totally bought into the philosophy of the survival of the fittest. Meaning that life is here for you to get as much of whatever you want. This is what the little L Lord does with his mind. And how he justifies it. And don't you know, don't you know that the mind of this carnal man must die? And must be born again. Don't you see that this picture we see in Romans is a picture of every single man there has ever been who is the Lord of his own life? He must die. He must be born again. He cannot please God. He will not enter God's kingdom. Romans 8, 7, Paul Paul will say this fascinating line. You, you can turn there if you like, but Romans 8, 7 says... The carnal mind is enmity against God. It means the fleshly mind. It means the natural mind, the non-spiritual mind. The mind who is not born again is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. The natural mind is enslaved to a life that is at enmity with God. This is what a mind is, and this is what a mind does, and this is what Paul is explaining in part as he shows us what these men do in their minds and what they're given up to. We're going to consider this idea of being given up a little bit more from verse 22. The given up race is the human race. The given up race, professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And like we said last week, the the kind of given upness here in this first step, I'll talk about in, in more detail 
in a moment, but this is a first step of an immorality that's taking place after idolatry. This is a, um, a basic sensual immorality taking place here. Following this is another step in their moral decline where their sensuality becomes unnatural in verse 26. For this reason, it says God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error, which was due. Uncleanness leads to vile passions flowing from minds that have less and less supernatural restraint. We're watching really a historic description of how men progress from bad to worse. So in verse 24, we see the word heart. And in verse 26, we see the word passions. I wanted to pause on these words because they don't say mind. But do men use this word to refer to things that are in your mind? Are, are these things things that people pursue? In other words, the heart, is that a reference to the mind and, and some affection of the mind? Are passions a word we use that express some ambition and emotional desire of the heart? Passions. Heart Passions are things that are in the mind of a man. Passions are something that give you drive. Heart is something that gives you drive and perseverance. Passions are the same. For a number of years now, people have been encouraged to pursue the thing that they are passionate for. They want to be a writer or a photographer or a an adventure safari expert or something. People are interested in pursuing their passions, even if they make no sense, following their passions. The mind's response to God in Romans chapter 1, the mind's response produces a life. We've been reading about the light that is produced by their response to it. Paul tells us that it is ungodly and unrighteous and it will see the wrath of God. The mind is drawn to and then becomes these things that will see the wrath of God. And Paul will say emphatically that all men are like this. Look at chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3 and look at verse 9. When we advance into the meat of Paul's argument of what he's laying out in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he finally is making some summary statements. Look then, verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Who is the we? When Paul says, are we better than they? Are we Jews? 
He's been speaking about Jews in chapter two. We'll get into that. Are we better than they? Why would he even suggest it? Well, because they've got the law. They've got Moses. They've got the the miracles of the prophets and the works of God in their culture. Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? And, And most Jews would say, well, of course, we're better than the Gentiles. We are the chosen people of God. So when he asks that question, he's asking it rhetorically to an audience mostly of Jews and of Gentiles, the Jews self-righteously seeing themselves as the chosen people of God. Let's keep reading. Are we any better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles, or both Jews and Greeks. We've charged both of these groups of people. Who has that left out? Who is not in that list? All men are in this list. And so you must conclude with me when we get to Romans 3, 9. Are we Jews better than they? No, we have previously charged everyone. Everyone. They are all under sin. This is one of the very earliest, he he mentions sin in chapter 2, but here he's making this summary statement of your issue with sin. Why is it yours? Because you are a Jew or a Gentile. You are a man. I I don't mean that to be thoughtless to women. Mankind fall here in verse 10, as it is written, There's none righteous. So when we're reading these few verses, 18, speaking about wrath and these terrible, sensual, sexual sins we read further in Roman, most of us are like, whew, I'm glad I'm not so perverted like those people. Because boy, would God be mad at me. Didn't Jesus blow away that fallacy in the Sermon on the Mount? Didn't he say if your eye or your mind wanders to the opposite sex, you're guilty of adultery? Didn't he say that? Don't you see you are in this realm of men whose minds have made you ungodly and unrighteous and have made you the ones who are in line to receive the wrath of God? Do you see that Romans 1 is to show men how desperately they need the righteousness of God? Do you see that that is what is taking place there? Verse 11, we're just going to read a tiny bit more here. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Let that sink in. These lines in Romans chapter 3 are inescapable. You are in this audience who did not seek God. We're looking at the entire race who changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, and so God gave them up to uncleanness. God gave us, God gave humanity up to uncleanness. And then the given up race walks in a perilous, a more perilous path 
Why? Because God has removed his restraint from them. He has taken his restraint from them. And their minds now don't have the restraint on them that they used to have. And none of them really understands or knows the things in their own hearts and what they're going to lead to. Have you ever experienced desire for a person you weren't married to? Have you ever shamed yourself and our creator by your own thoughts in this way? These who are described here in this advancing loosening, in this more loose loosening of God's restraint, they find themselves without shame and inhibition. And initially there are people who flirt with sensuality outside of marriage, that is before marriage. They're, 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 they're sensual in this way. And then maybe even in addition to marriage, so maybe seeking another partner while married. We all have seen these effects of God's giving men over in this way. We all know that these things are true. And this is what takes place because a mind would not and could not seek God's glory. Man's mind not only slides into idolatry, in pleasure seeking. Now, verses 29 to 31 is where it gets brutally damning. For whatever reason, Christians generally find themselves outside of these sexual sins. But look at these other evidences of the turned over mind from verses 29 to 31. We'll look at those more carefully next week. These are other things that the turned over mind is doing. This is what a turned over mind has done. Proud. Are you prideless? Are you the humble man or the humble woman among us who hasn't been touched by this? Unmerciful. You'll wear and own the mercy of Christ in your godliness without understanding without understanding is, is one of the curses of being given over are you still free from any condemnation in this list the given up is always on the verge of greater collapse. John Edwards preached a sermon from Deuteronomy 32, 35. It's a famous sermon from revival in American church history. From Deuteronomy 32, 35, he began with this, or he, he mentioned this concept to his congregation. He said, their foot will slide in due time. In this sermon, their foot will slide in due time. Let me quote As he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall, he cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. When he does fall, he falls at once without warning. They are liable to follow themselves, 
without being thrown down by the hand of another. The reason why they are not already fallen and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction as he that stands on such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit. He cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. Men cannot possibly appreciate their their peril and their rebelliousness and, and their being given over to their sin. Men cannot possibly appreciate this. Do you think Pharaoh? Do you think Pharaoh? put his foot down against Moses and against God, knowing it was going to lead to his ultimate abandonment. Pharaoh hardened his own heart three times and six times God hardened his heart. Pharaoh did not go to heaven. He hardened his heart and was given over. Complete rebellion and damnation. But men can seek God and repent. The gospel is for men to seek God and repent, but most won't because they love their slavery to sin and they slide into greater and greater godlessness. Men can repent. You can be saved by turning to Christ, seeking his forgiveness. But this is what happens when God's restraint is taken away. The unrestrained mind gets its way. Verse 27 says, they receive in themselves the penalty of their error. You don't don't write it up. You don't describe it. God gives in them the penalty of their error. And what is it? It doesn't even say. We don't know what it is. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It could be a sickness. It could be a... An emotional condition of some kind? The, set, the text just says in themselves. They, they receive a recompense. Something that is, the, the King James would say, it is meat with the sin that they have committed. In, or, in other words, it's appropriate for what has been done. This is an unforeseen consequence of their exchange and being given over. And this experience, this punishment may drive them to repent. It often drives them further into their sin. It often drives them further into receiving what it is they've been given over to. So who has been given up? Who is in view here? Darkened hearts. Turn to images. And image seekers are given up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. And married sensuality becomes adulterous sensuality and then same-sex sensuality. And we will look at the list of these other. There's maybe 20 
18 to, to 21 or 22 things listed in that uh, passage there, the very, very end of the chapter. But I think you could say that all around us every day, we can look around at our culture, we can watch TV, we can even visit with some of our friends, and, and we can see that in our culture is exactly like what Paul is describing here, men and women and children who are bent on loving the things that their hearts love, bent on getting the things that they want, their their pleasures, their way, the desires of their lordship. Men go from simple idolatry to worse and worse kinds of self-pleasing and God-abandoning loves as their minds feed on their own private dreams. What is it that is going to arrest the mind of someone who has been given over? What is going to stop it? What is anybody's hope? They are lost unless the glorious gospel of God's power to save would arrest them in their tracks. And that is how this letter begins. You realize Paul loves this gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who would believe the Jew first and also the Greek wife or in it the power of God is revealed in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith if you would wear the righteousness of Christ if you repent of your sin if you turn to Christ and seek his forgiveness this is what arrests this fall this is what stops this madness of your own soul. This is what frees slaves from their slavery to sin. Leave. Leave the manly, self-governed mind and turn to Christ. Don't read of these sins and, and claim your innocence of them. Read these sins and and confess them. And praise God that the, the Lamb who was given to take away the sins of the world has been slain and your sins will be forgiven when you seek Him for forgiveness for every single kind of perversion and adultery and covetousness and backbiting. Every one of these sins are forgiven by the blood of of Christ. I want you to turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 11. We are going to take a few minutes and we're going to remember the Lord Jesus. The death of Jesus is a death for sinners who seek Him for forgiveness. So we're going to take communion together. Those who have repented and put their trust in Christ, eat the bread and and drink the cup with sweet relish of the fact that we have a Savior. I want to read to you from chapter 11 and verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So we do. The Lord's death for you who have put your hope in the Lord is your death. The day of judgment, Christ's death is your death. That's why he's called the Savior. He died so that repentant sinners wouldn't have to as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood. In other words, there is only one person who eats and drinks this bread. It's the one who is eating and drinking, remembering the Lord's death, remembering his body, remembering his blood. So verse 28 says, let a man examine himself and let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Interestingly, he says in verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For the reason that many take communion in an unworthy way, it says they are weak and sick among you. There's a verse in chapter 9, and verse 22, where Paul says, To the weak I became as weak. It's the same word. He's speaking about spiritually weak in Romans, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. Spiritually weak. He says, for this, many, many, this reason, many of you are weak. Taking communion foolishly, taking communion callously. For this reason, many of you are weak. Many of you are emotionally sick, emotionally weak. Because you won't take this responsibility to remember the death and the blood of Christ seriously you take it lightly so this is how we this is how we do it properly we we do it seriously we remember the lord's death we remember the great sacrifice of our lord for us so i'm going to let you take a few moments in prayer randy i'll ask if you could help me um, hand this stuff out so you can all be praying in the quiet of your heart, and then uh, we'll take communion together in a couple minutes.
says the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. What a joyous, what a great way to remember his offering to us. He says, Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's take the bread and drink the cup together. great Lord and God Jesus Christ how I pray that you would cause our hearts and minds to increase in our ability to understand what it meant for you to take on flesh what it meant for you to have lived a life of a perfect man and then Sacrifice your life on the cross. God, we love you and we praise you for the Savior and the work of salvation on the cross. In the name of Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen. We sing number 333. You guys could stand and we'll sing. That was the first one we sang this morning. 333. 
chairs and, and stack them up up here and we'll just set up a couple tables for lunch. If you didn't bring anything, that's fine. I'm sure we have enough food and uh, you're welcome to join us for potluck. So I listened to your uh, sermon on Satan on life. Very, very good. You're going to do that once a month? Probably every five weeks or so. Every yeah. five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, it's just uh, good. Good.